Um, before we do start, a couple of things just to, I want to remind you guys of. Um, that is just the power of prayer. And as I mentioned here, Jody, you know, many of you don't know Jody Dexter. Um, they go out to the River Church. And uh, she has COVID. I mentioned it last week that, you know, to, to pray for her and that she was on uh, I don't think, I don't remember if she was on a ventilator last week or not. I don't, yeah, that's right. It was that just happened this week. So she is on a ventilator now and fighting for her life, basically. And um, I was talking to my wife on Thursday about this because there was a prayer thing at, out at Audrey Burns's and we couldn't make it there, but I just said, we, we need to go out to the porch and we want to be a part of this so that we can pray too. And it's easy for us when we don't know people sometimes, and I understand we can't take the burden of the whole world on our shoulders, but we are entering a time that I believe we are going to need to be fighting for one another in just some powerful ways in prayer and standing up for one another, especially even my heart has been so heavy this week between Jody, we had Josh's dad was in a motorcycle accident. He was in the hospital. Um, just all kinds of things Josh was needing prayer for there. Uh, these Christians in Afghanistan who we can't even begin to understand what they, those are going through. The desperation of some of those people to tie themselves to the wing of airplanes and basically get, you know, flopped to death. And here we are, we went to the rodeo, was that yesterday? Yesterday. And I struggled with it, even wanting to go, because I thought, you know, what if that was my son, my wife, my daughter, who was needing those prayers right now? And I'm just going to go to a rodeo and forget about it. We have the luxury and the privilege to set these things aside and not fight. Oh, we'll, we'll take that hour and we'll fight. Guys, we're entering upon a time. We don't have this little, little time period that we can fight for one another. We've got to start making some decisions in life. And I'm not talking about whether we take a, a, a vaccine or not. But whether we choose to watch TV or entertain ourselves or fight for one another. And I think we're at that time, and have been for some time, but I think we just have shoved it aside, that we really need to, to refocus. Because I'll tell you something, if that was my wife on a ventilator, I would hope every one of you were praying. And just because maybe some of you don't know her, I'm just asking that you guys fight Armor up, because it's time. It's time for us to just think about what's truly important in this world. And I'm telling you, it's not rodeos. It's not vacations. It's not TV. And I'm not trying to like disparage any of you or put you down because you're want to or you're planning a vacation or you listen, I know we gotta live life. I'm not saying that. 
But I am saying all of us, and I'm putting myself in that same, same boat, we really need to just say, you know what? I'm going to fight. And I'm going to maybe put some of this pleasure aside for now to choose to fight. Because I'll tell you what, those people in Afghanistan, those Christians, they have nothing, no time but to fight. 24-7, that's all they have. And I know God, His will will be done. And if it's that some of them die, I pray that God be glorified through that. The righteous perish and no one understands. Devout men are taken away and no one ponders it in his heart that the righteous are, are spared, they're taken to be spared from evil. That death is not an enemy for us. And we need to, to kind of contemplate that too. If it's the Lord's will to take Jody, the devil did not win. But that doesn't mean we don't fight. And we fight knowing that God's will be done. But part of this is a test for us. Part of what's going on in the world isn't for us just to go, oh boy, I hope God does something soon, and now us go live our life. Part of this is God is saying, will you rise up? Will you stand? You know, when the Israelites were going out of Egypt, he allowed them to get into battles to test them. Not because he wasn't in control and he wasn't protecting them, but that he was testing them. I think that we are being tested right now of how willing are you to stand up and go to battle for other believers, even those you don't know. Because I know there's a day coming probably when I'm going to want strangers praying for me. And we need one another. We need to stand together and be that united body of Christ to be praying for Josh's dad, his family, to be praying for Jody and those families, to be praying for all of those who don't know if they're going to have a job in a month or two, to be uh, just praying for others who are sick. And with that, I'll stop lecturing, but... It's been something that the Spirit is just really convicting me of. And I thought, we need to stand. So, let's open in prayer here now. Lord Jesus, boy, again, I just am amazed at your love for us when we are just so self-centered at times. So drunk on the pleasures of this world. God, I... I just, I lift up all of these things that we have talked about here now, Lord, those Christians, Jody, Josh's family, all of it, and so much more, and ask that you would just begin to, to prick our hearts and consciences, and, and that we would, as we sang, put our full trust and hope in you, knowing that you are in control, and that even if that Prayer is to give them peace and comfort and to give them opportunities for, for you to be glorified. Lord, it is about you, not us. Prepare us for your second coming. 
And as we open up here now, Lord, to study the book of Galatians, may you just continue to, to teach us your word. Remove all of the things that we have grown up with, the cares of this world, the, the culture, and let us just go to you right now to learn from you, to sit at your feet, and to be blessed by that. And so thank you for this opportunity. In the name of Yeshua HaMashiach we pray. Amen. All right, so as we start Galatians here, um, I want to kind of give you some background on it and show you how important of a book this is and why I felt it is important to, to go through this book here now. Galatians is probably one of the most used books out, uh, maybe Romans second to this, to say that a lot of what I have been teaching you is wrong. To say that what I just taught the last two weeks, that Paul taught something different than what Jesus taught. That somehow Jesus raised up the disciples, trained them all of those years, Paul comes along and everything gets changed to give a completely different view of the gospel when Paul came. This is one of the main books that is going to be used to support that false theory, false teaching. Now traditionally, the epistles are ordered not because of time, but because of their size. And so what we see is that as you read the epistles, they're longer, and then they get shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. That's how they were canonized, and that's the main reason. Now, we've talked a while back about a guy named Marcion in the first century who was branded eventually as a heretic and certainly was a heretic. And Marcion was one of those first to canonize scripture, but he kind of made his own canon. And in it, he got rid of most of the Old Testament. Um, he said that there was an Old Testament God, a New Testament God, there were different ideas. And so anything that was law-oriented, he got rid of, and he kept the new. Now again, he was eventually branded as a heretic. But he put this epistle first going against a lot of the other things. And the reason he did was because of what he saw it teaching. And we're going to talk about that because he saw the God of the Old Testament as a God that was filled with hate. Same thing we hear people saying today, especially the ungodly. Oh, that Old Testament God, you know, he killed all those women and children. And how can you love a God like that? Progressive Christians. That's what I mean. Progressive Christians today are saying that same thing. Absolutely. And so, for him, Galatians was the prized text because he saw this as getting rid of that Old Testament theology of justice, the law. Martin Luther here, I have this quote, it says, The epistle to the Galatians is my epistle, he said. I have betrothed myself to it. It is my wife. Now, his wife was Catherine, by the way, an ex-nun that had left the, the Catholic Church, and he 
kind of played a word, uh, not game, but kind of a word play on her name. Like he used to call her a certain thing that meant ball and chain that was very similar to Catherine. Now, what he was seeing, I don't know why I brought that up, but just a little tidbit, I guess. Um, fun fact. Fun fact, yeah. This is why Luther, he just saw, because he was coming out of the Catholic Church that was very legalistic, works-oriented, and so it's kind of, he took this as his own because he saw this as getting rid of all of those things. Uh, Tertullian. He said that our first witness for Marcion's order agrees with him to this extent, that he too holds Galatians to be the, quote, the primary epistle against Judaism. This is what this uh, commentary, a very famous commentator, Bruce, F.F. Bruce says. Um, basically what he was saying is he agreed with Marcion on this fact, that this was one of the greatest books to go against Judaism. Now, I know that when I say Judaism today, there are things that come up in your mind. Now, with that understanding of Judaism, I would probably agree with you. I am against Judaism in the sense of legalistic works righteousness. It kind of became known as that. Yeah. Would you say, like today in that sermon we learned about rabbinical Judaism, would you call it yeah, and there is a difference because rabbinical Judaism has a lot of man-made rules. But true Judaism, how it was intended to be, was basically God's word. Now again, I realize that that has been changed. It's just like to say gay today doesn't mean what gay really means, right? Gay means happy. I can agree with happy, but I can't agree with what we've made it today. All right. Yeah. <laughs> so that would you'd do so much better with that without your sinus infection. Um, I just want you to remember this: that keeping the law does not make you legalistic. What makes you legalistic is keeping the law with the wrong mindset, with the wrong heart, with the wrong understanding. That's why Timothy says the law is good as long as one uses it properly. If you use it improperly, the law is bad. So the problem is not with the law, the problem is with you and your understanding of it. That if you've turned it into works, if you've turned it into any of those kinds of things. <coughs> I want to show you what Peter said here. And we kind of looked at this uh, before, but in a different context, but here it says, Consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. He's patient. As also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him. So notice that they're calling him Brother Paul. The apostles weren't at odds with Paul and what he taught. So if Paul was teaching something different than the, epistle, the, the other epistles, they would have a problem and they would not be calling him Brother Paul in lifting him up. It says, he has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, 
as they do also the rest of the scriptures. They said that in all of Paul's epistles, there are things that are hard to understand, but for a certain group of people. What kind of people? Untaught and unstable. Now, what does it mean to be untaught? That they, they weren't you know, going to be very good at trivial pursuit? Is that what he's talking about? No, he's talking about the knowledge of God's word. The knowledge of the Old Testament. Because keep in mind that when this is talking, when they're talking about scriptures, New Testament isn't what they're talking about. They're talking about Old Testament. And so when he's warning people that Paul's words can be twisted and used inappropriately if you don't know the Old Testament well. That's what he's warning you here. And it goes on, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He's warning us, and I want you to take and apply this warning, because he says, as in all of his epistles, as we begin to go into the book of Galatians, heed these words. Because it is going to be very important here. Keep in mind, when Peter is writing this, he's also writing to the Gentiles in this book. So, um, Galatians 1.1, we're not ready to start yet, but I want to talk about who wrote, Paul, who wrote Galatians. Well, it says right there at the beginning, even though some will uh, try to argue that Paul maybe did not write this, and this is somebody writing in Paul's name, um, by and large, it's, most theologians would not have any dispute saying Paul wrote this book because he says it right there. There were some Gnostic books, which were heresies, that were written and people signed Paul's name to it to try and give it credibility. But they were clearly Gnostic, they disagreed with Scripture, all of that. Okay? Galatians is not going to disagree with Scripture. He is going to quote the Old Testament constantly. Just like we saw in Hebrews. So, <clears throat> when it comes to the book of Galatians, it has, throughout history, been found in every single canon throughout history. In other words, there is zero question to its inspiration and uh, credibility. So, uh, that, I think that's just kind of important to know at this point. So, um, point being, nobody questions the book of Galatians. However, in recent time, we've had some people start to question it a little bit. Okay. Uh, again, I disagree with that. I don't think there's any reason to question it. But we are, we get to these progressive Christians who are talking about the red letters of Jesus and all of that. And Paul is, you know, you can't trust Paul. You can't trust anything unless Jesus said it kind of nonsense. But anyway, we're, we're not going to get into that. Um, to whom is the book of Galatians written? Well, it says this also in the first verse. Paul, an apostle, 
not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. In other words, these aren't my words. This is the word of God. These are words from him. And all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. So who is it written to? Well, you can see Galatia up here. And what I want you to note, because this is going to be very important. We think of Galatia as just like, a, well, here's a letter to the church at this town called Galatia. No, this was a whole region of churches. And you can see Derby, Iconium, Lystra, Poseidon, uh, all of these you're going to see in the book of Acts. In essence, what you're going to see is that Galatians is really second Galatians. Or you could call it second Acts. I'll explain that as we go. But it's going to be vital for you to see this because to understand the context of what's going on in the book of Galatians, you need to understand the context of what was going on in these churches as written in the book of Acts. Because these are the very places that he goes in the book of Acts on his missionary journey. So this letter to Galatians is after he's already been there in the book of Acts, and he's writing to them again now, addressing issues that have come up in the churches all throughout that area. So, um, like I said, we will revisit that, but I want you to note those names because you're going to see them in the book of Acts when we get there. So when is this written? I believe about 49 to 50 AD. You're going to see some will take it up to 53, some even that go on some other weirder ideas all the way up to 57 AD. But I would say probably 49 to 50 AD is when this is written. Um, remember that the temple of uh, is Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. Jesus is crucified somewhere around 30 AD. So in essence, this is happening right in between, in the middle of all of that. From the time Christ has ascended and things are about to be destroyed. We're seeing persecution is beginning to rise up. That type of thing is what's going on. And so the gospel is being spread here in full force at this time. And uh, again, that's what we see in the book of Acts as well, that the missionary journey going out, the church is growing, the gospel is spreading. Now, why is this written? I'm going to jump ahead to verse 6 of Galatians and just show you this. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him, that's Jesus, who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. So the very reason that this is being written is because of a heresy. Something that appeared good, it appeared like it might be a gospel, something nice, but was not. Or you might say it appeared to be another way to be saved, but was not. And so, somebody is preaching a different gospel, another way to be saved. And I want you to note, this is a mere 20 years about after Jesus has ascended. It did not take long for Satan to try to destroy the gospel, 
to destroy what was truth. And Paul is fighting against this right away. The Galatians, all of those churches are Greeks. They are Gentile churches. So this is why we see them listed in Acts 10 and then in Acts 15, which we're going to talk about later, we see the Jerusalem Council because the Jews are like, what? The Holy Spirit has been given to the Gentiles? No way. What do we do with this? And so that's kind of what this whole missionary journey is what's sparking the problem. Okay? But keep in mind that these churches have Greek backgrounds, not Jewish backgrounds. They've grown up with more pagan festivals than the Jews had godly festivals. Okay? So that's going to be important to, to remember that as well. The Marcionite Prologue is a group of smaller commentaries that are even quoted to this very day. Um, it's kind of used as almost a, a gold standard of what was going on in the churches at that time, but considered to be accurate historically and whatnot. The Galatians are Greek. They at, they at first accepted the word of truth from the apostle, but after his departure, they were tempted by false apostles to be converted to the law and circumcision. The apostles call them back to the faith of truth, writing to them from Ephesus. Now, at first glance, you might be able to look at this and say, okay, this is what all the other churches are telling me today, that there were these false apostles trying them to get them to obey the law. That is not what this is saying. What this is saying is that they were trying to be converted to a law that saves. How? Through circumcision. Okay? If I can sum up the, the number one issue that you're going to read about in the book of Acts and in the book of Galatians, it is you have to be circumcised to be saved. That is the issue. We'll sum it up in that. If you lose focus of that, you will lose focus of the context of these troubling verses for the churches today. John Chrysostom. It says, Some of the Jews who believe being held down by the prepossessions of Judaism and at the same time intoxicated by vain glory and desirous of obtaining for themselves the dignity of teachers came to the Galatians and taught them that the observance of circumcision, Sabbaths, and new moons was necessary, and that Paul's abolishment of these things was to be ignored. So Christostom is another early church father teaching that Paul had abolished the law. Now, and the Sabbaths and all of these things. I am going to disagree 100% with that. And you will see as we just look at the context of this by, it, by itself. Well, but, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. The very fact that it says homily, yeah. I, that's, a, that's a Catholic, that's yeah. what you call the sermon. Uh, you know, so I'm like, already, I'm like, ooh, that's a Catholic. Yeah. 
it, yeah, I, I, I definitely believe this is wrong. But there's some truth to it. And that is that there were these false apostles teaching that it was necessary for those things. But teaching that it's necessary to be circumcised and saying that Paul abolished the law are two completely different issues. If Paul abolished the law, what do you do with Romans as we looked at the last two weeks? What do we do with all of these verses, Timothy, and everywhere else where Paul says, I did not abolish the law, or Jesus saying, I did not come to abolish the law? So clearly that can't be right because that's a contradiction of Scripture to say that Paul abolished the law. So that can't be what's going on here. Now, by the way, I would say there was a time in my life that I would maybe look at these early church fathers and think, oh man, they were so much closer to that time period that they've got to be right. I mean, more right than we are. No. Uh, when we look at some of the things the early church fathers said and took it out of context, all you got to do is go look at the verse that they're quoting and go, oh my goodness, these people were no better than us. They were sinful people just like you and I. Here we see uh, Bruce saying this here. Uh, he says, the sum of the letters is as follows. The Galatians are going astray because they're adding Judaism to the gospel of faith in Christ. Now, it depends on what you mean by Judaism there. Observing in a material sense the Sabbath and circumcision together with the other works which they received in accordance with the law, disturbed by these tendencies, Paul writes this letter, wishing to put them right and call them back from Judaism in order that they may preserve faith in Christ alone. He's saying the same thing that we've been seeing these other guys saying, I agree and I disagree at the same time. Paul is trying to keep them from going to the Judaism of saying, works saves, circumcision, you have to be circumcised. He is not saying, we get rid of the Sabbaths, we get rid of the laws, or else, all the we got to throw out the New Testament, and there are so many contradictions in the Bible, I myself would not believe in God's word anymore. That Nicaean attitude, don't be Jewish. It is exactly that, yeah. And that's what we're seeing with all of these early church fathers, is yes, we do not want to have anything to do with Judaism, the Judaizers, any of that. Okay? So, Luther's work says... Galatians has been brought by St. Paul to, the, to right Christian belief, from the law to the gospel. But after his departure, there came to the false apostle, or came the false apostles, who were disciples of the true apostles and turned the Galatians back again to believe that they must attain blessedness through the work of the law, and that they were sinning if they did not hold the work of the law, as according to Acts 15. So, what I'm showing you all of this, and I'm done with it, is that I want you to see that everybody's saying the same thing. No wonder this is what we believe today. Because this is what all the commentaries are telling you. This is what many of the early church fathers said, is it was uh, running away from the law. But these are all people who have written, as you said, with an anti-Semitic attitude that began shortly after Acts chapter 15, but was not the early church. And it says that they were sinning if they did not hold to the work of the law. Let me ask you something. What is sin? Lawlessness. Exactly. 
lawlessness. That's not her definition. That's not my definition. That's the Bible's definition in John. Sin is lawlessness. Period. That's what Scripture says. So, if you are going against the law, is that sin? Absolutely it is. You might be a forgiven sinner, but it doesn't change the fact that that's sin when you break the law. That is defined. That's what sin is defined as. So, you've got to keep that in mind as well. Now, that they must attain blessedness through the work of the law. Are there blessings in obeying the law? Absolutely. We've read that in the New Testament in the last few weeks. We showed you that God said, Jesus said, he will, I will manifest myself to those who obey me and keep my commandments. So God said, I will manifest myself. All you believers, if you're not going to keep the commandments, it doesn't mean you're not saved, but don't expect for me to manifest myself to you. Don't think that I'm going to know you, or you're going to know me, I should say. That's what Moses said, right, in Exodus 2. He says, Lord, you have said, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you'll send with me. You have said that you have found favor with me, or I have found favor in your eyes. If you have found favor with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. I don't remember last week, I think it was, I was telling somebody, it's interesting to me that as I look back on my life, there are mile markers that I can say were huge for me in my walk of Christianity. Now, I believe I've been saved as long as I can remember. As long as I can remember in my mind, I remember praying at night to Jesus and loving him with my whole heart and knowing that he has paid for my sins. As long as I can remember. I have zero doubt that at any point in my life that I can remember, had I died, I'd have been with the Lord. Zero doubt. So I'm not talking salvation here, but I can tell you that when I was in high school, I'd listen to Def Leppard, and I'd sing Hell's Bell, Satan's Gonna Get You, He's Coming For You, and not even realize that I was saying those words. I would sing... AC, DC, Def Leppard, all of those things. And I got to college and I watched Hell's Bells, The Dangers of Rock and Roll, and I was convicted by that. And I thought, I am done with this. I'm getting rid of it all. I got rid of all that you know, ungodly stuff. And I started listening to Christian music. First I started listening to country, so I got into country for a while and realized, oh, same, same evil, just a different tune. <laughs> so then I went to Christian. And I said, I don't care if I'm not quite liking it yet. I'll learn to like it. I don't care because the words are what made this other stuff evil. And I, I can't even tell you in words the blessing that God put on my life because of that one little step of obedience to decide to stop doing that. I could go through three, four things in my life that when I decided I'm done with this and I chose to walk in obedience to Christ in that little manner, whatever it was, whether it be music, movies, whatever, there was a blessing on my life. God manifested himself to me in some way. And so don't think 
that by you choosing to obey God's commands, that you will not receive a blessing where he will manifest himself to you in some way like scripture said. This isn't about getting saved. I was saved before that. This is about your walk with him. And there are blessings in it. And I can tell you that when I started to keep the Sabbath, God manifested himself to me in other ways. When, when I rejected evolution and stood firmly on creation, God manifested himself to me in amazing ways. I'll tell you, I, I, I describe it this way to people many times. I went to an Institute for Creation Research seminar and I came home and I truly, literally repented and said, God, I'm so sorry I have not trusted you fully. And I said, I'm a willing servant. If you'll use me, I am willing. And that's how I got started in the creation ministry 25, 20 some more than that years ago. But I'm telling you, it is like scales fell from my eyes and all of a sudden scripture just started making sense in ways that I could never see it before. Okay, obviously I'm not saying literal scales, but there was an opening of the mind and of an understanding of God's word that I did not have prior to that day. Even though I was saved, I believed in Jesus. I just had, I was building on the foundation of Jesus with some wood, hay, and stubble. And I chose to get rid of some of that and start building with some precious stones, gold and silver, as 1 Corinthians 3 talks about. So, let me tell you something. You will attain blessedness through the work of the law. Not salvation, but blessedness. So, as I said, the point being is everybody's saying the same thing, but I'm going to show you that they're wrong. And that might sound arrogant. It's not because I've discovered some new truth here. It's just because it's what Scripture says. And we're going to let Scripture interpret the Scriptures, not people interpret it. Not even me. I want you to let the Scriptures speak for themselves. So, um, we're going to challenge this church history. Acts 13. We're going to kind of look in Acts a little bit here. Because, as I said, you might say that this is 2 Galatians. In Acts chapter 13, you could rename Acts Galatians, the first Galatians. It says, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. Now here's a map, you can kind of see where they're at. Starting there in Syria. From there they sailed to Cyprus. Then you get to verse 21 in chapter 14. When they had preached the gospel to that city made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, and it goes on and on, verse 24, so when they had appointed elders in every church. What we see is he's going through Galatia, planting churches, appointing elders in those churches, establishing a foundation, and that is what's going on. Now, Antioch was a, a very powerful town at this time and probably one of the most influential of Syria during this day. Paul and Barnabas are there when the Holy Spirit separates the two of them and so they go two separate directions. So we see Paul going to Galatia and 
then we see uh, Barnabas going another direction. But the point being is they want, I want you to see that they were going through Galatia, planting churches, and so now when he's writing to the people of Galatia, it's to these people. So the context is the same, and you have to keep that in mind. In verse 26, from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now, when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, this was not a small issue. Keep in mind, Gentiles were unclean. They, you had nothing to do with them. And for them to see that God had opened the door to the Gentiles is about the equivalent of us in our mindset that to say Mormons are saved. I'm not saying that. Mormons have a false gospel, to be clear. But it would be the equivalent in our minds. For the Jews to see that God has welcomed the Gentiles was like, no way. How can this be? They are pagans. They have pagan gods. They have pagan lifestyles. Everything is pagan. It would have just been completely foreign to them. And so now you've got these Gentiles coming into the church, and the Jewish believers are very confused by this. So they have to come up with some explanation. And that is why we see in the very next chapter... In Acts chapter 15, keep in mind in Acts chapter 10 we see Cornelius is, is baptized and the Holy Spirit comes upon Cornelius, a, a believing Gentile. So now then, we're going to get to Acts chapter 15 where this Jerusalem council is taking place. Now, this is immediately after they have finished coming out of Galatia. So that's why this is important. So now they're defending what they've done and seen in Galatia. And here we see in Acts chapter 15, certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So there were these Jewish believers who still had the legalistic aspect of Judaism, not a full understanding of the gospel, which we will explain later, but they're saying these Gentiles have to be circumcised or else they're not saved. Be like you saying, if Mormons are truly going to be coming into the church, they have to stop wearing their holy underpants, okay, or something. Pick whatever you want. In case you don't know, they wear holy underpants. So, anyway, um, if you understand that the whole book is about the topic of circumcision, it's going to make this so much easier for you to understand what Paul is talking about. Um, because that is going to be the context right here of the rest of the whole point in writing back to these churches. Because this is what's going on. In verse 2 of chapter 15, Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, with these Judaizers, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. Now I love this. Why are they doing this? 
So here we got these Gentiles are, you know, have been brought in. The Jews are upset. Paul and Barnabas are trying to defend the fact. And they're like, no way. And so we got this fight going, yes, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, sir, no, sir. And so they're, they're fighting. And so they decide, well, then, if we can't agree, then we have to go to a higher power. Where are we going? To Jerusalem. To the apostles and elders. Why? Why to them? Well, I mean, it probably stands to reason to some common sense. Well, they're the apostles, you know. However, it's deeper than that. Jerusalem was the supreme court, you might say. Why? Because that's exactly what the Old Testament Torah told them. Paul and Barnabas are going to go toe-to-toe with these Jews from Judea over the issue of circumcision. And since they couldn't agree, they're going to follow what Torah told them to do. And that is, go to Jerusalem. Look in here in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 8. If a matter arises which is too hard for you to judge, between degrees of guilt for bloodshed, between one judgment or another, or between one punishment or another, matters of controversy within your gates, which is what we're dealing with here, then you shall arise and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses, which later we see becomes Jerusalem, and to the judge there in those days, and inquire of them, they shall pronounce upon you the sentence of judgment. It is this verse right here in Deuteronomy why the Sanhedrin was formed. When Jesus, they don't know what to do with him, what do they do? They take him to the Sanhedrin. What is the Sanhedrin? The Sanhedrin was a mixture of Sadducees and Pharisees, these judges, the priests, And they were the law. And whatever they said, you had to abide by. And so, for centuries, you had this system set up. That if there was a controversy that was too big, you went to Jerusalem. And the priests would be the ones to settle it. So... um, When this dispute arises here in Antioch, that's where they're going to go. They're going to follow Torah, and they go to Jerusalem. The only difference is is they're not going to the priests and the Levites that are serving at the temple right now because there's a new Sanhedrin in town, and that is the apostles and the elders. And this is what we see, and we're going to talk about this later, that Jesus even establishes this in saying, you know, I give you the keys of the kingdom and all of that. He was said, there's a new Sanhedrin. There's a new covenant. And under the new covenant, there's going to be a new group of leaders. This is why we see in Acts 15, James being the last one to speak. He was probably the Nasi. That means the, the ruler, the head. And even church history tells us James was the head of the early church. And that's what we see in Acts chapter 15. His say is the final say. They go before this new Sanhedrin to see what the judgment is going to be as far as circumcision and salvation goes. 
So it says when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension dispute, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others would, would they go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. That is why we're seeing that. Now, uh, as I said before, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 19 is where we see uh, Jesus saying, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven giving that authority, transferring that authority. Um, we even see Jesus before he ascends. Remember, he asks his disciples, who do, who do people say that I am? And they, some say this, some say that. And he said, what do you say I am? That's what he asks before this. And he says, yeah, you see, because you have answered rightly, because you know the truth, you guys are going to be the ones that are going to be put in charge. Now, by the way, is this any different today? Kind of, maybe, but why is it that in, when we read in the book of Revelation, what do we see? There are 12 gates with the names of the, well, and 24 elders. A lot of people, most commentaries say the 24 elders that fall before the throne are the 12 apostles and then the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob. I don't know, it doesn't say that in Scripture, but it does say in Scripture some things that will back that up, which I'll get to here in just a second. Um, here's the Matthew 16, 19 verse. And so, like I said, the Lord is establishing a new court, a new Sanhedrin of apostles and elders here. And he's transferring that authority to them. So this is an authority by Jesus' own words, in a sense. Here's what Matthew 19, verse 27 says. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have all left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in... The regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So just like we see the keys of the kingdom being passed on, we see Jesus even saying here, listen, you twelve, you have authority, and you will, even in the coming age, be given judge, uh, thrones to sit on, which is why when you go to Revelation, we see, I can tell you, at least 12 of them belong to them. Do the other 12 belong to the tribes of Israel? You know, the, the sons of Jacob or Isaac? Probably. Jacob, I mean. Can't say for sure, but probably. So anyway, that shows you that this is the weight of this matter that's being discussed here in Galatians, and it should make us enter into this with a little bit more sober judgment. That whatever the Jerusalem council ruled is where we're going to find our truth. Not what Marcion said, or Tertullian, or Christostom, or any of these other guys. Okay? The keys of the kingdom were not given to them. Now, just a couple more here in Acts 15.2. Again, when we saw there was no small dissension, um, 
they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem. We've kind of covered that. I'm jumping into next week, so I thought I might get a little bit further. So this was kind of a review to kind of point where you needed to go. But verse 5, But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up. So keep in mind, this is the church. These are believers. We're not talking about the Pharisees who had rejected God. We're talking about maybe some Pharisees that accepted God. Paul was a Pharisee. Some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Why would they say that? Well, for a very good reason they would say that. It isn't like these were bad people. And we're kind of making these people sound almost as if they were bad. They were just ignorant. They didn't know any better at this point. And you're going to see at the Jerusalem Council, they do come to a consensus and they do change their minds. But there are going to be some others that just refuse to accept grace alone for salvation. But the reason that they would say this is because this is exactly what God told Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 17. It says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am all God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generation, he who is born in your house or brought, bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. It's in their flesh. That's been mentioned more than once here. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. You read this to a kindergartner, they would say, you have to be circumcised, wouldn't you? You can see why the Pharisees would be saying, listen, Torah says this. So is Paul in the Jerusalem council going to go against Torah by saying you don't have to be then? Well, look at that. Because if you're not circumcised, you are cut off. That's pretty much unsaved. So... <laughs> Paul understood this. Paul knew Genesis 17. And if Paul is a big supporter of Torah, as we've seen over and over and over and over again, we've got to make some sense of this. Well, first of all, Colossians 2, verse 11, says, In him, in Jesus, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, 
by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God. Now, what's interesting then is remember what circumcision was in Genesis 17? It is a seal of my covenant, a sign of the covenant that I have made with you. But it was a sign in the flesh. In the Old Testament, where was the law? It was in the flesh, was it not? Remember Jeremiah 31? I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with, my, with your forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they not, did not remain faithful to my covenant. This is the covenant I will make at that time with the house of Israel. I will put my law in their hearts and in their minds. Write them on their minds. That he changed the location of the law from stone to the heart. It's the same thing here. The flesh is a picture of that stone, not the spirit, the flesh. Just like Romans is consistently saying we do not live in the flesh, we live in the spirit. Paul saw that God was doing the circumcision in a different way. And in Romans 4.9 it says, Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only? What blessedness? Yeshua. Salvation. Does it come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. Was Abraham saved by circumcision? No. So Paul is using Torah and going back all the way to the beginning to say this wasn't about salvation. Because Abraham was called, chosen, saved when he was not circumcised. And it goes on to basically describe that. For we say that faith was accounted for to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had of, by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So that seal is very important because look what Ephesians 1.13 says. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. We see that now we're not sealed or a sign of a physical flesh, but we are sealed in a sign of now the Spirit in us. Remember, that is how Paul knew Cornelius was a believer. What happened? The Holy Spirit came on them. And they're like, what? The Holy Spirit came on Gentiles? Because that was God's seal. God's sign. Because there was a new covenant. Remember the whole book of Hebrews? That there was an old covenant, and now Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. And so with a new covenant, there's a new sign. Remember I have said that the Bible is not Old Testament, New Testament. I think it's New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament. That we had a New Testament Bible up until the book of Leviticus, ultimately. 
when the Ten Commandments are coming for the most part. You could say Exodus 20 or whatever. But how were you saved? There was no... There weren't any Ten Commandments. There weren't any of those things. You were saved by faith, just like Abraham was. And then you have this period of Old Testament Levitical law. And then you go back to where you were before. The priesthood of Melchizedek. What was Abraham under? A priesthood of Melchizedek. What are we under? A priesthood of Melchizedek. That is what Jesus is in. A priesthood of Melchizedek. So you've got the New Testament restored again. And so this is why Abraham was saved and without any sort of circumcision. He was saved before that. Anyway, um, I think it's important to see that because this is not legalism if you understand it properly. The prophets foretold of this. Isaiah 8.16, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. And by the way, go look at this in Isaiah 8. This is a messianic passage that the Messiah would come and be a stumbling block. So we're not taking some Old Testament verse and just trying to spiritualize it into the New Testament. Okay, God would seal the law in his disciples, in their hearts, in their minds, by the Spirit. Okay, um, again, when we read in Scripture, when it says, By this we know him, if we keep his commandments. See how the commandments, in a sense, are a seal that shows people that were his? By this we know him if we keep his commandments. Is it not a sign to others that we belong to Christ by the way we live and keep the commandments of God? A tree is judged by its fruit. By their fruit you will know them. Yeah, it is a sign. Yeah. Well, that's what the Pharisees were trying to say. But again, with a new covenant, there had to be a new set of rules. And I think that's what Paul is saying. So this is why I say I don't blame those Pharisees. I get why they were, were arguing. You have to be circumcised. It makes sense. And this is why Peter is saying, listen, Paul, we know that some of his teachings are hard to understand. But if you're untaught you're going to twist that. Not just because you can pull things out of your hat, but because you're going to be able to use Scripture to twist it, but take it out of context and make it mean something different. And so that's why this is so important. When we say that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed, that you need both. You can't just be an Old Testament believer, because then you miss the boat. But if you just make it a New Testament believer and throw out the old, you're still missing the boat. Because you need the old to understand the new, and you need the new to understand the old. So, again, the new covenant sets a new rules, and that's what that Colossians was saying. 
under the old covenant, you were circumcised by the hands of men. But now under the new, we are circumcised by the Spirit. And that Spirit is what was prophesied over and over and over throughout the Old Testament that would happen. It almost seems you can pick and choose. Yeah, yeah, I, and I've, I've been asked that question many times, and here's, here's how I explain it. I'm not going to say I have all the answers, but here's how I explain it. I do the ones that the Bible says. I don't know about the others. I, I don't understand that. I think someday we will. But everything that I see that I preach was already done before the Ten Commandments were given, before the book of Leviticus. You can find them. Even the Sabbath, in essence, was laid out before the command was given. And there's some evidence to suggest that they were even keeping some sort of Sabbath before, but it was laid out at creation. That was before Leviticus. You can look at eating clean. Everybody thinks that's a Levitical law. No, it isn't. We see that distinction between clean and unclean all the way from the very beginning in Genesis. Some people say there's ceremonial laws, there's civil laws, there's moral laws, there's the Ten Commandments. I try not to get into that separation because I don't know and I think that sometimes then we lump things in where they don't belong. For example, eating blood. That seems to be a, you know, maybe a, a ceremonial law type thing or something. Well, no, that was there before Leviticus and we see it in Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 21. We're being told not to eat blood as well. So somehow it seems almost like that. Remember I said New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament? We, we see that. I believe that there's, going, there's a reason for them. And we're going to look at some of those in Leviticus that I think we can see. There was a spirit behind it that I think we can trace scripturally. We'll, and this book on Galatians will get us into some of those, so I won't get into it tonight. But for now, suffice it to say that I think a lot of those things had a spirit behind them, like wearing the tzitzits. Okay, we've talked about that before. That the tzitzits were what? For you to remember the commandments of God. Because they were in the flesh. You needed that constant reminder. Now in the New Testament, do I need that? No, he has put it in my heart. He has put it in my mind. And that is why I don't wear tzitzits. Because it has been taken to the spiritual purpose of it. Now, is it wrong to wear tzitzits? Not at all. Go ahead, wear them. As a reminder of the commandment of God, if you want that, we put crosses on our walls. It's a good reminder for me. It's, you know, whatever. Listen to Christian radio. That's fine. But do we have to do those things? Not at all. So, we're going to talk about some of those things, but I think that what I, what I personally go for is what I see laid out in Scripture, and it's in the New Testament. I see Sabbath, I see food, I see baptism, okay, uh, I see Torah uh, being talked about, so... I do what I can. Now that doesn't mean that we wouldn't maybe be blessed by some of those Levitical things. But I'm telling you there's some of them that I don't understand. And I'm just going to continue to wait for God to manifest himself to me as I continue to be obedient to what he does show me.
so just so that people can hear, what do you say to people? You know, I'm not convict, convicted about keeping the Sabbath, you know, or whatever. I think that if I can show it to you in Scripture, you should be convicted. And like I said, it kind of goes back to what I've been saying. I can show you these things in the New Testament. I can show you where they have not been repealed. Have a hunger, and when God reveals something to you, to have a heart for Him to be saying, I'm going to do this. Because I see this. I see this in Scripture, so I'm going to do it. And when, he, when you do that, He's just going to reveal something more to you later as well. He just continues to... I think the church word is sanctification. He will sanctify us the more and more we go along. And I think that if you would take all of the laws, lay them out, you could kick out a whole bunch of them that, okay, we're not in the land of Israel, you can't do those anymore. You could kick out a whole bunch of them because of the new covenant, clearly, you know, the sacrifices, things like that. So I, I don't think that there's all that many that we would say we don't understand for the most part. But like you said, the, the spirit of that law, learning that, I think that's what it is for me. You know, say, how do I choose? By the spirit of the law. I choose by everything that I can see in scripture that I say, okay, I'm going to, do my best to follow that with the proper understanding of this has nothing to do with salvation. This has everything to do with me just being obedient to God. If he tells me to jump, I want to say how high. Period. I don't have to understand why he's telling me to jump. I just jump. Because he's God. And if it seems weird or whatever, then fine. I mean, it does, I'm not doing it for salvation. I'm doing it because I have a spirit, a heart after Jesus because he saved me, I, I want to know him more. And I'm grateful. And so, when he put the law in my heart, that means that I'm not bound. And so to say, well, how come you don't do this? Well, because I don't understand it. And I'm not going to just go do things to do it out of a legalistic perspective. I want to do it out of a spiritual perspective. And so... He will reveal that, but I'm only going to do it when I can see it scripturally. Not because, oh, the Jews do it, so I'm going to do it. I don't care what the Jews do. I want to know what God's word says. That's what matters. We're out of time, and so I will, that's as far as we'll get tonight. But um, you're going to see some of these things as we go through. Acts or uh, Galatians, we're going to actually get into some of these strange things that I think will help you understand this a little bit more. For now, suffice it to say that the issue of Galatians is circumcision, not whether the law is good or bad. Secondly, that... Um, Circumcision of the Old Covenant has been replaced by baptism of the New Covenant, according to Colossians. And that is a seal, a deposit guaranteeing our salvation. That's what it says in Ephesians. Now, yes, yes, I'm, yeah, that's where I was going to go next, is not baptism itself, but what happens in baptism and I don't even understand that. But the Holy Spirit is what God sees in us. 
that we are saved. That is the deposit that is guaranteed. So baptism does not save you. Okay, baptism is a sign of your salvation. A sign in the flesh, just a Exactly. But not one that is seen in the flesh, but one that is seen by the Spirit. And what is that? It is by the Spirit that we obey. That works don't save, but that is evidence, a sign of you being a Christian. That's why he says a tree is judged by its fruit. And so it is visible. What is inside you is visible in what comes out of you. And so those are the things that I want you to kind of take home with you tonight. Not the unknowns, not the confusion. I even have that in some of these things, and that's okay. I'm willing to table that until the Lord shows me more. I'm just going to go with what he does show me for now. So let's pray.